Chris Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailer Snatter, just talking to teachers. Nailer Snatter, just talking to teachers with Teacher Hug Radio, the soundtrack to your teaching career. Okay, so welcome to Dan and welcome to Murray. Welcome to the show, guys. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're going to get into the questions. But before we do that, we're just going to do our gentle introductory question. So, Dan, if we can start with you, if you can just tell listeners a little bit about you and about your background, please. Great. Well, Phil, um, it's uh, great to be here. I've been involved in education uh, for a fair while. Um, I started off um, as an investor in education businesses in the UK and overseas, um, having previously qualified with the PwC um, and worked in technology and uh, um, services businesses. Um, and I, I, I basically have worked in techno- in education technology, everything from early learning through to higher education uh, in the UK, in North America, in Europe, um, and in the Far East. Um, and during that experience, um, I've been really focused on understanding how you can best drive great evidence. Um, and at the moment, I am the CEO of Sparks, which is a maths-focused education technology business based in the UK. Uh, we've grown over the last few years from a standing start to about 1,900 schools, um, looking after about 1.7 million uh, children, uh, predominantly in the UK secondary school market, um, year seven to um, GCSE, but also we have a footprint in about 20 countries uh, with international schools and are currently uh, looking at uh, the direct-to-consumer market. Uh, we support mathematics, both in terms of homework and classroom, um, and we are uh, very much focused on providing um, research and evidence uh, to support our proposition uh, to both teachers, schools, um, and students. Thank you, Dan. And the same question to you, Murray, please. Certainly. Uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me. My name is Murray Morrison. I'm the founder and CEO of an edtech company called Tassilai. Uh, but I came into education, you could say fell into education completely by accident. Uh, my first kind of career, my first love was music. And I was a professional musician uh, for a number of years. I uh, came up to London to do that and, uh, and was also a very keen, uh, not very successful athlete. Um, but I really got into teaching partly as a just to get a part-time job to supplement my music practice and, and my and my sports practice um what emerged very quickly in terms of my my classroom teaching and science and maths was was what i taught um was that i felt students really lacked any kind of proper rigorous mechanism for practicing by themselves and learning by themselves being self-sufficient in their study it felt very much as though the model was about spoon feeding children with knowledge and often those teachers having to repeat and repeat that knowledge, uh, particularly when you have the complexity of, of trying to manage the needs of many children in a classroom at once. And so I felt that I could just improve my practice by developing what became Tasmai as a software, a system wherein students practice through adaptive quizzing and I could see as their teacher immediately where they were struggling and focus my teaching and my intervention on their specific needs. So that was the foundation of the platform. And, and, and very quickly, that became my life and the music and sport fell by the wayside. But where I feel that I benefited from that background was that I learned through 
as a science teacher, I shouldn't say through osmosis because I'm not using the term correctly, but I learned really by exposure to professional musicians, professional athletes, the power of really structured practice and how that can be applied to learning. So that is really the the foundation of TASMI. And now we're in several hundred schools. We have um, around a quarter of a million students now in the UK use TASMI in secondary schools, um, answering at times more than 2 million questions a day. So the data and the evidence we can gather in terms of how students are learning and how to support good teaching is really becoming very powerful. Uh, And how I know Dan and how we work together is through uh, our work together in terms of promoting good evidence in EdTech and good research in EdTech. Fantastic. Thank you both. And for regular listeners, we'll know that we quite often asked our guests about uh, three tracks that have influenced them in their work. Now, we we uh, are very fortunate. I always say this, fortunate to have a music license. It's not like I stole it. I did have to pay for it. So we have got the ability to play some of these uh, songs later on. So um, for listeners' benefit, I can see Murray's face now as he's thinking about those quickly. But we might come to that later on in the podcast to perhaps give us a couple of tracks that uh, have influenced both of you two in your work okay so moving on to the questions so dan if i can come to you first uh, what does good edtech evidence look like that's a brilliant question i think it evidence um is all around making sure that the edtech provider and therefore the school and learner is aware about the efficacy of that product what demonstrates evidence that demonstrates that the product does what it says on the tin um and, and there's numerous ways to gather evidence and there's numerous ways to determine what evidence looks like. Partly it's a function of what um, the outcome is required by the learner of the school. But good evidence is one which identifies very clearly what problem is trying, is trying to be solved. Good evidence is around making sure there's a track of performance over multiple periods, be them uh, terms or years, ideally terms, where ideally years where you can see that outcomes being monitored regularly. Now that can be gathered in very convoluted manners through randomized double blind, double blind uh, control tests, which is what Sparks has done, or it can be done in a simpler form. Um, but it, it is about the science behind making sure that evidence is gathered. And of course, then it's about the challenge to the schools and learners to make sure they go out and seek that rigorous evidence that they look at an evidence-based approach by which the proposition is put together. Um, and I, th- I think, I think, and I, I'm sure Murray will add to that, but I think it's around making sure that um, that evidence has rigor, uh, it can be tested, it can be validated, it's independent, it's objective, and it's just not marketing spin or smoke and mirrors, which we, you do still see in the market. Mary, do you want to come in on that? Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I, I certainly want to pick up on the point that Dan just made there about, well, I suppose the purpose of evidence. Good evidence, I would say, is the product of good research. And good research conducted by any by any company, whether it's an education company or, or any other, good research should be not about selling your product and f- done for the sake of marketing. Good research should be done for measuring how effective is our product and where can we improve it to deliver the outcomes that our that our users, our customers need. So I I am always wary of evidence displayed for the sake of of marketing. I want to see always in 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 products and and it's the aspiration of our company that we conduct research in order to find out where our faults are and improve them 
for the outcomes. Now, I, I, the other thing that I learned about evidence gathering and research when I kind of tried to learn to do better at it was that good evidence, um, good evidence is repeatable. So it's all very well for a company to say, oh, well, we did this and we tr- tested this product out on these six students and they all got 100%. Well, great. Can I repeat that piece of research myself in my context? So good evidence should show you the context under which it was conducted so that the customer, the school in this case, can say, well, is my context the same as that context? Will this work in my school? And if I try this out, can I repeat this and expect to get the same results? So that's another really key thing to look for, the repeatability, the context. Um, You know, we talk in product development often about product market fit. Do I have good product market fit? Does my product fit the needs of the market? Well, Evidence market fit is another aspect of this. Does this evidence fit my needs as a as a customer, and should I be buying it on the on the strength of that? That's a great point, and it's something that we've talked about quite regularly um, on the show around the context. And we, we use the EEF's implementation guide quite a lot, and we've we've talked about sort of schools sometimes having solutions looking for problems um, rather than the other way around. And I think it's really interesting that you talked there about the context. Now I'm going to go on to Dan with this one. Um, obviously, school leaders in the last few months have become a little bit more expert in using technology, and we've had to get to the to, to the pace of that pretty quickly. But there's still, you know, key questions, and obviously, we've got two experts on the show today. So, what are the key questions that school leaders should ask edtech companies? And I suppose, what answers would you expect? I, I suppose that's that's sort of one of the reasons behind um, something that Murray, I, and a number of other edtech companies set up something called the EdTech Evidence Group, which is, is a group of EdTech organizations which have come together to make sure evidence is at the heart of what we do um, and making sure that we've got um, a high quality evidence gathering in organizations and we can educate and work with schools to ask the five clear questions. Be clear on what the problem is that you're trying to solve. Understand that there's different types of evidence from anecdotal to deep double, uh, randomized control trials. Look for rigorous evidence, not, as Murray was saying, one-off evidence, sustainable evidence uh, which can be repeated. Make sure that, the, that the, there's an evidence-based approach on how the edtech company is developing its proposition. Uh, but for what I think the most importantly is to be open and confident in challenging suppliers. If they have an evidence-based proposed, uh, a based approach, are data-driven and collaborate with schools, they will happily share everything. We at Sparks publish all our research. We've just concluded a piece of work with Cambridge University who objectively public, uh, did research on what how Sparks was operating. We had no control or oversight of their methodology. They published the, their findings um, actually last week and it's available on the Cambridge University's Department of Education website on the efficacy of what Sparks does. That's what schools should be looking for. That openness where if you're working with schools and you know the impact is great learning and has a direct impact on the beneficiaries of students, you should be open. You know, you don't want to sell an ed tech product which causes harm or damage. And that's the attitude and approach that schools should be looking for. Marie, do you want to come in again there? Yes, certainly. Uh, well, Dan really is an expert on this and, and the foundation of the EEG. He wrote... Uh, very well on this exact topic, and, and his answer really has encapsulated that. Uh, we work often with science teachers, although TASMI is a product that's used in English, maths, and science. Science is kind of our, our sort of starting point. And I'm often surprised that 
scientists who are these science teachers often don't feel like they can really, or that often don't feel that they uh, can ask questions of us in terms of our evidence. When in fact, we welcome that kind of scrutiny. And I think teachers should feel more confident to ask those questions. Um, particularly if a company is making sort of evidence claims that feel more like marketing, a big headline, a big splash, uh, but then very little to back it up. Good evidence should be, is this a word, interrogatable. You should be able to dig into that a bit more and, and ask more about it, ask to see their working and, and, and explore it. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, there's a, although schools and teachers are now very much more adept at using technology for the delivery of teaching, uh, they should feel more confident now to really ask more searching questions of, of tech providers and, and, uh, and just make sure, will this, uh, will this solution work in my context? And can I see that same evidence here can i see you're working it's, it's a really important part of it join in the conversation on hashtag teacher hug radio or call the show on 0800 246 1555 And it's great that you're both on today to kind of empower us to think in those terms. And it's an interesting point that you make there, Murray, as a science teacher myself, you know, it's, it's ironic that we spend a lot of time teaching about, you know, how to interrogate data. We spend a lot of time talking about efficacy, reliability, relatability, all of those kind of things, but actually don't apply that in our position as either a teacher or potentially as a school leader. So I think that they're, they're great points. As a follow on, Murray, if I come to you with this one. What are the challenges around proving that EdTech actually works in a classroom? Well, it's, it's a tremendously difficult thing. I, the, the proof that this one thing works for everyone is, I would say, you know, almost impossible. Uh, but I always fall back on, um, will, this, will this solution work for my students or for this individual? Uh, and how can I be confident in that? So much of the success of a piece of technology, as with anything else, a textbook or a teaching style, careful about using the word teaching style, um, so much of that depends as well on implementation and, and delivery and, and, and so on. So, uh, you know, it's, there, isn't, there isn't any way you can be sure that this one thing will work for you. You do have to think considerably, think carefully about how that will be implemented and how to give it the best chance of working. So I would look at the evidence that any provider offers. And again, I keep coming back to that, see the context in which it was shown to work before and really do that sniff test of like, does this actually ring true? But if that, if you're confident enough that that rings true, then I would always talk to an ed tech company about, well, I'd like to trial it in my context. I'd like to see this work. Can we try it out for a half a term or, or a period of time and set up my own research around uh, measuring its impact? You know, set up a logic model, say this, this product claims to do this for students like this. I'm going to design my own experiment to measure whether it's going to work for my students in that same way. And I'm going to figure out what I'm going to measure before and after and do my own piece of research. In fact, that EdTech company would probably thank you for conducting that and giving that feedback. Um, yeah. Thank you, Murray. Dan, do you want to come in on that one? I think that the, the challenge is, if that's the question, um, uh, the challenge is, you know, it takes time. 
it takes time. Um, EdTech companies have got, um, um, it's quite difficult if you're an early stage company um, uh, and you've recently started or you've got a great idea um, and you want to get it out to market as quickly as possible, but you know that you need evidence in place. I think it takes time and willpower from the EdTech companies to go to their backers and their investors and say, no, the first important thing is that you invest in EdTech evidence. Don't don't force me to invest in a sales team or a sales function. Um, as an investor, you should be looking for me to be to have a sustainable degree of evidence to make me as an ed tech company sustainable and my schools are sustainable partners. Um, the worst thing is to be a flash in the pan um, and do, as Murray says, a rah-rah presentation, uh, which looks very fancy, um, but doesn't deliver the evidence. We would not go buy medicine based on the shiny wrapper. We don't buy medicine because your mate told you it works to get rid of the headache. You buy Panadol or Nurofen because you know it's been through years and years of testing. And that philosophy has to be in place when you're providing um, a tools to help educate children or support children. Um, so the challenges, I mean, they, they, there are some practical challenges. The practical challenges are getting better about some ed tech propositions need devices and laptops in classes. And, and there's a practical challenge of making sure those devices are in place. Now, the government's doing a great job of getting devices out there during the pandemic to serve other purposes, but they will clearly be used on an ongoing basis. So there's an aspect of that. Um, and of course, the other ultimate challenge is making sure you work closely with the teachers. Do not forget how EdTech is implemented. It's in schools, it's implemented with teachers. Make sure that you understand what the teacher's life is like, how it's going to support them, not undermine them, not overwhelm them, but totally enable the teachers. And I think that becomes really important to have that powerful relationship. And if you can get over that challenge, and if you can demonstrate your research, and if you can focus on providing the evidence, um, those challenges become hurdles which are easy to get over. Thank you, Dan. And you've written quite powerfully on uh, this kind of topic recently, haven't you, about the importance of, of ed tech and the article that you wrote recently for uh, edtechnology.co.uk, which was about the need to accelerate evidence and research and not use the current pandemic or COVID to take its foot off the gas. So could you just share with listeners a little bit about uh, the themes of that article? I think that was really about making sure that people don't get lost in trying to solve um, trying to solve COVID uh, without providing evidence on their propositions. It's very easy to throw solutions in time of a crisis which don't uh, become sustainable, both in the minds of the learner and the teacher. Um, and I think, um, as, I, as I wrote in the article about not only making sure um, you're providing the, the EdTech as it's required, but making sure you have the evidence and objective evidence. And that's around making sure you've got uh, ha undertaken randomized control trials, making sure there's research undertaken and published, making sure it's independent, verifiable research, as, as, uh, as uh, Murray was saying. Um, and I think for, for us, that's really important um, to demonstrate to, to the, the users um, and the teachers, as you said, you both taught science, you need the evidence. You, you, you cannot do this um, on rah-rah and um, uh, uh, smoke and mirrors alone. It's about getting the priorities right. The priorities have to be there to make sure you, you provide evidence. And I think I, I, mean, I, I reference things like the EdTech, EdTech Impact Organization uh, that does great validation of independent 
um, EdTech products. The EdTech Evidence Group, which both me and um, Murray are co-founders of, which is out there to promote solid EdTech evidence. Um, and it's to avoid the noise, avoid the smoke and mirrors, ask those piercing questions. You don't, you shouldn't really care whether the King of Spain or, or the Queen and Sheba's children's uses. That's interesting, but that doesn't prove anything. Celebrity endorsements are nice, but that doesn't prove that it actually provides efficacy. I mean, that's the piercing question should be, should be asked. And there's a long way to go. We've got to accept there's a long way to go, but you, you, can, you can only start down our journey uh, by, by taking one step, and you've got to make sure there are literally no shortcuts to any place worth going. Thank you, Dan. And Murray, you talked earlier about this idea that you could potentially pilot um, a particular product within a school. And I, I mean, I hesitate to say this is something that, that school leaders or teachers might not have thought about, but perhaps we're not as kind of savvy in terms of asking about that. So how can schools benefit from working with ed tech companies to pilot and test their products and solutions? Well, it is very difficult, of course, with so much going on and so many uh, competing priorities that they have to be on the lookout for nascent new ed tech platforms looking for partners but they are they are out there there are always some really exciting ed tech entrepreneurs who've come up with something often and more than often than not from within the teaching community who have ideas and things they want to try out and in, in terms of from the from the from the uh, company's perspective of trying to develop evidence they really do need that partnership with schools so it should be quite straightforward if you can find them to set up something, some collaboration where they provide that service for you and you provide good feedback for them on, on how to make it work. Uh, you know, teething issues around usability as well as some measures of impact and evidence. Now, where to find those companies is, is difficult, but there are many communities, uh, education technology accelerators, um, communities like the EdTech Evidence Group as well, where we're gathering new members and, and often there'll be young companies that are looking to start their evidence journey. Um, so having your eyes out uh, for for new companies that are coming through, whether that's through BISA, the, the Education Suppliers Association, or accelerators like Emerge Education and so on, there are there are places out there where there are companies looking to partner with schools and um, uh, and it, it's quite possible to then set up something where you can get the benefit of that early technology, conduct some research with them and help it to, to develop to be the tool that you want it to be as a school. Great. Thank you. Dan, do you want to come in on that one? I'm sorry. Could you repeat the question, please? Of course. Yeah. So we we're just talking a little bit about how companies um, can work closely with schools in terms of piloting their particular products or solutions. So we've kind of talked about the fact that, and Murray's absolutely right, it's difficult for school leaders to kind of prioritize the time to do that with everything else that's going on. But also quite often, and again, you know, speaking personally, we may not have the experience of the business world, perhaps, or the skills or ability to be able to source contacts and be able to ask for that. So what are the mutual benefits, I guess, from schools and ed tech companies piloting and testing products and solutions? I, I think um, I've always assumed that to be taken as read. Um, we, we, when we started Sparks uh, many years ago, it was on the basis of total collaboration with the school. We spent the first eight years of the life of Sparks working every single day with schools, testing, retesting, 
figuring out what works, what doesn't work, throwing things away that uh, uh, didn't work, making more solid and sustainable things that work. Um, we are, you know, totally beholden to those schools that have helped us all the way through the process. And we continue to use schools as partners. The reason that's so important is you cannot be a technology person who suddenly thinks they want to go to education. You have to be education first, then say, right, we can use some technology to enable or promote or deploy this. That's the way it's got to work. And that requires a lot of hard graft of working with schools and collaborating and learning and, and realizing that the frontline schools experience um, will take all your theory and throw it out the window because the school teachers and the, the, the frontline staff are half teacher, half counselor, half half caterer, half social worker. I mean, and, and I think you know sometimes it's difficult for education technology companies to realize we're not the priority sometimes. We're not the number one thing the school teacher thinks of. They may have disadvantaged students in harm's way. That becomes a priority, and that's more important for them. So we've got to work with that to understand the teacher's life, understand what's changing. COVID has, COVID has put it in a real spotlight on how schools operate, um, and COVID has put a spotlight on how education technology can support, and they do have a lot of priorities right now. I'm hoping that during this, as we come out of this rather tragic uh, circumstances with, with COVID, that schools appreciate what EdTech can do and actually gives them the impetus to work more closely with their EdTech providers and partners to make the products better. Thank you. And I think that they absolutely will be doing and kind of following on that theme, if we can, Murray. So looking ahead, what do you feel that the government maybe and all stakeholders need to do to help schools with ed tech for kind of September 2021 and beyond? Well, uh, good question. Good question. Uh, the government obviously is very keen to uh, make up all this lost time, all this learning loss with you know, big initiatives around catch up learning and so on. But I'm not entirely sure that there's um, not entirely sure the DfE know exactly what um, nail is going to fill that hole. Um, and the danger is, of course, they'll say, schools, here's tons of money, go spend it and hope that that, that does the job. Um, it's really important whether schools are given that, that budget to spend how they wish or whether the DfE provides some guidance, uh, which, which raises all sorts of alarm bells, of course. But in, in either case, it's really important that evidence is at the heart of any of these kind of procurement plans. I, because I've got a, that, that background in teaching and tutoring, I've been asked often about the sort of catch-up funding for tutoring. Uh, the, and, it, and it does give me pause for concern because I've always worried about, well, it's all very well to throw expensive tuition at a problem. But if it's not targeted and it's not really uh, easily tracked as well in terms of its impact, it could be a very expensive experiment. Uh, I think that if any school is going to be spending money on technology, again, they have to come back to that evidence piece first and make sure that what's being done to, to make up this lost time is something that they can really be confident will deliver those results. Uh, whether the government prescribes certain solutions or not, again, it will need to be done with an enormously careful eye on what is going to show what is what is showing evidence of impact so that that money and time isn't wasted and i think what's interesting uh, marie and that is that um obviously sir kevin collins has recently been appointed as and i don't know if the exact title of his job is the uh, the catch-up czar but he's got no. a foot in both camps hasn't he in terms of his work 
uh, with technology companies. He's, he's done some recent work there, hasn't he? And obviously his work with the EEF and all the stuff you've talked about, about evidence and research implementation. You know, so Kevin was kind of at the forefront of a lot of that. So I think that's a reassuring appointment for the teaching profession and possibly for the ed tech as well. Yeah, so his his um, history with the EEF in particular is um, is obviously gives some solace to to schools and providers to say that this this is somebody who really does understand what evidence looks like in education and and and, um, and how the various options, whether that's technology or other approaches, can can have a, a, a big impact or not. Uh, so that's that gives some solace, absolutely. Uh, and I'm going to be interested to see what comes out of that uh, work that he does for the DfE. Thank you. And Dan, if you want to get your crystal ball out and see what you kind of project for 2020, 20, I can't even say it, 2021, uh, September and beyond. Well, I think, you know, we're going to ha- have an announcement in the next uh, um, uh, few days from the government in terms of when um, we're going to be getting back to school. So that that's what everyone's waiting for. But I think looking forward, I think it's really important to to remember that um, education is a nation building and nation rebuilding tool. It's not fast food. It's got to be thought in that context. It's a tool to rebuild a nation and God, do we need rebuilding? We've had um, 12 months of absolute disruption from students. Um, How do we assess that catch up? What is required for students? You know, Every student will go through a different, very personalized experience of lockdown. Some will have thrived, some will not have thrived, some will have got the knack of certain subjects, others others may well not have. The schools and teachers need to be aware. Come September, when we're probably back into a rhythm, those those that information is going to be very valuable on, on where the catch-up is and making sure that the government's aware that they provide the right framework. I know the government's putting a consultation out there on how schools should buy products and um, services better. That's a great opportunity for the government to focus on how to make sure evidence sits at the heart of those buying decisions, um, to make sure that there's an evidence aspect to buying and the efficacy aspect to buying. Um, and I think that's sort of the, the empowerment they need to be providing providing the schools. The rest, you know, it's going to be it's going to be all around the execution. It's going to be about the delivery, the fortitude, and the hard work the teachers and the frontline staff put in. Um, I'm not a great one uh, for policy debates, but I think the execution should not be forgotten. It would be very easy to sit in Whitehall and come up with um, great ideas if they're not executable or not sustainable. They'll just become just ideas and, and, and not um, something which is practical. And that's what we should focus on practical uh, delivery capabilities and what the government can do that because you know we are going to have three years of recovery four years of recovery of this catch-up this ripple of this catch-up will continue Um, imagine children who are pre-gcses into gcses a levels or college tertiary or secondary education and higher education this ripple will continue we will have a, a, a generation of children who will have suffered 12 to 18 months of disruption and we shouldn't have to do that. We should be focused on making sure we close those gaps. And, and that inequity will carry the inequity that has occurred basically due to the advantage disadvantage has only widened. The, the, this, this, this lockdown has, has widened that inequity in the classrooms 
And I think we really need to work really hard with the government, with the schools to close that gap. It's a really good point you make down there as well about the, the time over which this effect is going to be felt. It's a long time. And and we'd be mad to think as a, as a country, as, or certainly from the, from the department's point of view, that we can come up now with the solution we need. This is what we need to, to make up the shortfall. This is going to be something that takes a lot of time and a lot of adaptation and adaptability. We shouldn't sort of pretend for a moment that we can come up with a plan now that's going to solve all the problems over the, over the time ahead of us. Uh, and so to that end, I think the government has to be very uh, tuned in to what teachers are saying is needed. Um, uh, there's a there's a danger of a sort of top-down approach that says, here you go, here's this money, here are recommendations, go and do this thing. Well, what's needed in one school may be very different from what's needed from another. Exactly as Dan says, that, that sort of equity issue is going to mean varying and different needs around the country. But over time, those needs will change. So a good dialogue with teachers on the ground to find out what's needed and where it's needed most, I think is going to be crucial if we're going to bring things back to the level they were before the pandemic. Yep. And in terms of a dialogue with teachers, obviously we've started the process on the show today, but if listeners would like to find out a little bit more about either you personally, the work of the EdTech Evidence Group or, or your companies as well, could you tell us a little bit more about where we could find you? So Murray, if we can just start with you, please. Well, yes, um, I'm easy to find as long as you can spell TASMI. So good luck with that. Uh, T-A-S-S-O-M-A-I. Don't ask me why I called the company that. But um, if you find TASMI, you find me fairly easily. Um, but also, uh, if you want to find out more about the EEG, if you search for EdTech Evidence Group, you'll find the website there, which which brings up you know the various companies that have co-founded that organization and, and talks about the work we're trying to do to promote better research and education in ed tech. And, and Thank you. And you, Dan? Sorry. And from my side, it's um, um, if you look at sparks.co.uk, all our research is published on there, and that'll give you links to the research from Cambridge University uh, and other research blogs, etc. Uh, happy to look at my LinkedIn profile, Dan Sandu, uh, to look at articles. And, and just to help Murray, it's edtechevidence.com. We'll have all, all, all the pieces from the EEG group as well. And I think the EdTech Evidence Group has a LinkedIn um, page and a Twitter handle as well. Fantastic. Thank you. So uh, just thank you so much for your time today. Now, um, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there and see whether you'd be interested. So something that we've moved on to on the show recently has been our vinyl suite. Now, I know that you're both uh, men of technology and uh, probably unlikely to have a record player. I don't know. I'm presuming you may well have, but we like to do a musical choice to play out the show. So I've given you a little bit of time to think about it because we teed it up earlier in the show. So um, is there anything that you would like to play, which kind of sums up either you, your work, your experience, or just something that a nice piece of music that you enjoy? So Murray, are you going to be brave enough to go first? Well, I, you did mention it before, and I thought of uh, a couple of things, but um, these this was because we were talking before about practice and uh, and so on. So there are two pieces that come to mind for me in terms of practice. And, and um, one of them is quite embarrassing. It's the training montage from Rocky IV, which is the greatest piece of motivational music imaginable. I used to always have it on my headphones when I was warming up before a competition and get me in the mood. 
And uh, yes, that's great, but it's a little bit embarrassing. It's very cheesy, like synth uh, 80s style. But the other piece for me, which encapsulates the power of good practice and learning, is uh, the, the, the piece of music by John Coltrane called Giant Steps. This is a piece of music that is almost unplayable. It's the practice aspiration of any uh, saxophone player to, can I play Giant Steps? Can I play around those changes? But when you hear John Coltrane play it, it's the result of him going away and practicing day in, day out, till his lips bled 13 hours a day, uh, and came back into the studio, recorded this piece, and just tore up the whole music world. So, giant steps—that is the power of good practice, and that would be my—that would be my piece. Right, at the sake of becoming a member of Murray's fan club um, as this goes on, because we've talked science and we've had the same kind of uh, experiences there, but you will not believe what record is currently on my record player, Murray. It's not, it's not the training montage from Rocky Four. you'll be pleased to know. Um, I have, I've been entertaining the kids with my jazz collection. So that is currently, you know, on actually is currently playing on the record player. And if, you know, if we get time at the end, I'll bring it in and show it you. Just so I'm not making this up for the purpose of, uh, you know, it's on your record player. It's actually on my record player as we speak. So I'm going to bring that in in a minute and just prove that. So I'm not just saying this thing for effect. Like Dan said, it's not about rah, 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 show this. This genuinely is the case. Brilliant. Okay, Dan, what about you? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just not as eclectic in my tastes uh, in music. Give me a bit of soul. Uh, um, four tops, reach out, I'll be there. Now if you feel that you can't go home Because all of your hope is gone And your life is filled with much confusion Until happiness is just an illusion And your world around is crumbling down Darling, reach out out for me We're there to help. Um, I could go Alice Cooper schools out, um, but I think I, I think it, it's going to be a bit of soul for me. Um, or you know, you go for a good musical like The Greatest Showman. Uh, this is me. It's all about stepping up, being there, being available. Uh, but I have to agree with Murray. There's nothing like a bit of Rocky for motivational montage. Yeah. 
Superb. And that's what's so good about this section. It gives the listeners now more of an insight into you two's personalities much more, doesn't it? And into your companies as well. So that's fantastic. And obviously, we'll intersperse this interview with clips of uh, the training montage, the four tops. And of course, uh, as I'm going to show in a minute, you know, <laughs> my, my, my and Murray's uh, jazz leanings with their, you know, <laughs> say, for, for the listeners who can't see Dan, he's rocking a beard very much like Sylvester Stallone had in the training center of Rocky Four, <laughs> where he's up in the in the Russian steps and, and sorting that wood. I mean, it's a, it's a striking comparison. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Okay, just to say, really, really appreciate your time, Dan and Murray, today. Uh, and obviously, we'll put links to everything that we've talked about into the show notes. So thank you very much. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Join in the conversation on hashtag Teacher Hug Radio. Or call the show on 0800 246 1555. Okay, so hello Dominic and welcome to the podcast. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. So um, we're just going to get straight into the questions because we've got a lot to talk about today. So the first question, if you could just tell us a little bit about Just Like Us, why was the charity set up and what does Just Like Us do? So Just Like Us is uh, the LGBT young people's charity uh, in the UK. And we were set up basically to give LGBT plus young people a voice in LGBT inclusion initiatives in schools across the UK. So um, there are many, many other LGBT young people's charities, um, but perhaps uniquely we focus on empowering LGBT young people themselves uh, to lead the change. Uh, And we do that through a number of key programs. So we've got uh, the Ambassador Programme, Uh, in which we train 18 to 25-year-old LGBT young people to speak in schools about their experiences, um, really providing that LGBT role model um, that so many of us didn't have at school. Um, We've got School Diversity Week, which is our flagship event once a year, where we provide schools with everything they need to celebrate um, LGBT diversity. Uh, And then thirdly, we have Pride Groups, and Pride Groups is where we set up LGBT and allies groups in schools and provide training to student leaders and teachers um, to make sure that we're really empowering that student voice. Great stuff. Thank you. So if we go straight into some questions, uh, and the first one is going to be around what are the school experiences of LGBT plus young people like? So thank you for asking that. It, it's quite, it's an interesting thing, actually, because I think if you're not LGBT, then the last 10 years, 20 years, you will have seen a huge progress for LGBT people. So we've got marriage, we've got serving in the armed forces, the age of consent, all these different things. But interestingly, they're really all, um, they're really all developments that have impacted on adults rather than young people. And the answer on what's happening with LGBT young people at school at the moment is really that it's a bit of a lottery and it depends on what school you go to. By and large, the picture is still pretty bleak. So three and four LGBT plus young people across the country uh, will be bullied because they're LGBT plus. Um, Join in the conversation on hashtag Teacher Hug Radio or call the show on 0800 246 1555.
happen. And that's still the case today. Um, and the schools that we work with, of course, uh, are, are doing some fantastic work. There's a number of schools that we don't work with that are doing some fantastic work, I should say. Um, so there is really, really good practice, but there's a huge difference in what schools are delivering. And for those schools that aren't able to deliver anything or don't feel they're able to deliver anything, actually, there won't have been much change in the last 30 years. So there won't be much change in the school. Thank you for that. Okay, so um, excitingly, you've just had a piece of research commissioned and published uh, in the last few days. So would you be able to tell listeners a little bit about what that research was into and maybe what some of the findings were? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things we were particularly concerned about was the impact of the pandemic and lockdown on LGBT plus young people. Um, now, that sounds like a, a very specific thing to ask. Uh, and we know that, of course, absolutely everybody has had a really difficult year and everybody's been separated from their friends. Um, but what we also know is that LGBT plus young people particularly often rely on for support networks, people that sit outside of their family home. And that's other LGBT plus people. People, that's their friends, um, particularly, if, for example, if they're not out to their family or if their family's not approving of their identity. So what we were really impact, interested in is the impact of being separated from these networks for an extended period of time. Um, and the results we found were pretty stark, actually. So we found that LGBT plus young people were twice as likely to feel lonely uh, than non-LGBT plus young people and were twice as likely to worry about their mental health on a daily basis. In fact, seven in 10 LGBT plus young people say their mental health has worsened compared with about half of non-LGBT plus young people. So, I mean, by every measure, it's about, it's a poor picture across the piece for all young people. Um, but for LGBT plus young people, it does seem to be particularly bad. And within that LGBT plus umbrella, um, LGBT plus young people who are eligible for free school meals, trans young people, LGBT plus young people with a disability, and LGBT plus young people who are also black uh, fared the worst. And we'll do some links later on to your website. So is that uh, piece of research available for listeners to, to look at there? So the, we released the headlines yesterday and we're releasing the report next month. So it will be, but not quite yet. Okay. So let's just talk about a little bit more about how uh, Just Like Us can help educators. So what kind of things can Just Like Us do with schools, with teachers? Um, and obviously you're always happy to answer questions and give advice to educators uh, on inclusion and things like that. So just, just outline, Dominic, if you don't mind, some of the things that Just Like Us can do to help educators. So th there's a variety of models for LGBT inclusion in schools. Um, and one thing that I'm always very, very conscious of, and it's something that's talked about a lot, but I, I still, I'm not sure it's quite understood by people outside the sector, is quite how little time teachers have got at the moment and quite how much pressure is on LGBT, is on teachers, um, particularly during the pandemic, but actually before the pandemic. You know, teachers were in a place where they had this tremendous pressure. So all of our resources are created to make life easier, not harder. We don't want to give teachers extra responsibility. What we do want to do is where teachers are trying to embrace this work, we want to give them things that come out of the box that are very, very quick and easy to use. Uh, and that's what we do for School Diversity Week uh, at the end of June, which we're taking registrations for now, uh, if anyone's interested, and it's absolutely free great and that people absolutely will be and again we'll put links to that uh, on the show notes um, and uh, hopefully on teach hog radio as well so just moving on a little bit if we can in terms of um you work across the full range of schools so you also work with you know faith schools non-faith schools primary schools secondary schools and how important is it as well 
that non-LGBT plus educators do this work? So it's really important for several reasons. So firstly, because LGBT plus people are between six and 10% of the population. Uh, So, um, you know, we really need allies to step into that role for us. And I think secondly, because there's a bit of a, you know, when I was in, when I was doing teacher training with LGBT uh, was on LGBT inclusion, um, probably about, I'd say 70% of the room were LGBT plus teachers. And I thought there was something a bit sad about that. Great that they want to get involved, of course, but that the impact of delivering LGBT inclusion, which is often something people have to do in addition to their job, falls on LGBT plus people themselves. And it falls on them because, you know, we know what we went through at school and we, we, you know, teachers I'm consistently amazed at quite how passionate teachers are about supporting young people. And these teachers know the burden that can fall on LGBT plus young people at school. And they want to make sure it doesn't fall on, on the people that they teach. Uh, So, so it's absolutely vital. And actually I think there's a real power in non LGBT plus teachers delivering this work. Um, One teacher I was in, there was a a kind of, (laughs) you know, a straight sports teacher that was leading this work. And he was so incredibly passionate about it. And it just made all the difference because you were talking about someone that was a role model to many of the straight young boys in the school uh, that was talking about the importance of inclusion. And it was really, really powerful. So we absolutely need our allies too on this. Absolutely. Okay. So in terms of your work at the moment, and again, really appreciate your time today because I know how busy you are. Um, Is just like us still doing talks during um, the coronavirus uh, pandemic? Are you still doing sort of virtual talks and how has that impacted your work? And I would know you've you've mentioned how it impacts the, the students as well. Oh, how's it impacted our work? <laughs> We're a different charity almost, I think. Um, it was It's funny, you know, when this first started, I, I joined as chief exec in February. And really my first big, that's February 2020. And really my first big decision was sending all, all the staff home. <laughs> uh, so it's impacted us tremendously. And what we've tried to do is not say, well, look, let's wait for things to get back to normal because we don't know when that's going to happen. And it was also part of our, part of our goal not to put teachers teachers under additional stress, um, which we felt that, you know, if we're saying, when can we come in? When can we come in? Well, actually, there's a lot going on in schools at the moment. Teachers are having to deal with um, moving different groups in and out of their classroom. It didn't feel like that was meeting our brief to be helpful. Um, So we have set up all our programs in the virtual space now. Um, So we have uh, Zoom calls with schools. uh, So schools can still book LGBT young people to talk to to their students. And that can happen either on on school or some of the schools have set it up. So we're um, beaming to young people at home. Um, there's a number of ways it can work. Um, so that program is fully virtual. Uh, School Diversity Week is fully virtual. So we've now got um, a series of masterclasses representing every key stage and subject in the curriculum. Um, and they're delivered by LGBT experts and celebrities in their field. And that's all online. We've partnered with Facebook to deliver that. Uh, so yes. And, and, and then the third um, program is Pride Groups. And we're running that through um, uh on, online as well so so all of our programs are now online great okay so in terms of school diversity week now that's really exciting and i've had a look on your website about the kind of people that you've got working within that week as well so tell us a little bit more about school diversity week which is your annual celebration of lgbt plus inclusion in schools so you've mentioned it's in june but exactly when is it uh, what is it are there free resources available for educators that are listening and how can schools and colleges 
uh, listening to this, how can they take part? So um, School Diversity Week starts on the 21st of June this year. And if you head over to our website, that's www.justlikeus.org, there's a big button saying sign up and it's all completely free. Um, And there's kind of two parts to School Diversity Week. So one of them is a toolkit that we provide to educators. And the toolkit's got lesson plans um, with resources in all the different uh, key stages and all the different subjects. Uh, It's got campaigns that the young people can get involved with. It's got posters as you can print out. It's got all sorts in there, really everything you need to get this work going. Um, and the second half is the masterclass, as I mentioned. So we're doing uh, 15 masterclasses, uh, which will be held online and you'll have access to all of them. And they're delivered by subject experts. So for example, um, last year we had um, Dr. Ranj uh, was talking about um, coronavirus to an audience, uh, to a primary audience. We had uh, experts from the British Museum talking about same-sex relationships in Greco-Roman times and uh, someone from the V&A who was delivering a talk on how LGBT plus people have used art um, in order to uh, express themselves when they weren't able to express themselves. Um, So it really is, it's a lot of different stuff. What I'd say it's not is a kind of this is what gay is because I think... In the LGBT education, we do that so often. We, we, we come up with these kind of very formulaic lessons um, and we wanted to do something completely different, something that just looks really, really fun. And, and that's what it is. Great stuff. Uh, apologies for these seagull sounds in the background. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm from Brighton, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't know whether, Dominic, sorry, we're going off topic a little bit. Um, I didn't know whether the seagulls were in the background of yours or mine, because uh, I'm in sunny Lytham St. Anne's, and obviously and you're in Brighton as well, so uh, we've got our seagulls at both ends of the conversation here, which is, <laughs> which is a lovely touch for listeners. I okay. think these are my ones. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, no, it's a lovely sound. I've just got so used to it from being around here that, uh, yeah. I just thought it was on my excellent right okay so last question uh, obviously you're doing a lot of work as you mentioned on social media and uh, other avenues so if you could just tell listeners where we can find out more about maybe you personally about just like us and where people can connect with you and kind of join in the conversation so if they'd like to connect with me personally if you head over to twitter and i'm at, at dominic uh, dot sorry at dominic arnall so d-o-m-i-n-i-c A-R-N-A-L-L. And you can follow Just Like Us on all social media sites. So on LinkedIn, uh, on Facebook, and on Twitter, and on Instagram to hear more about our work. Um, And I think if you'd like to get involved in School Diversity Week or any of our other projects, you head over to www.justlikeus.org and we'll give you everything you need to get involved. Fantastic. So thank you very much for your time, Dominic, today. Uh, Really, really appreciate it. And we'll put links, like I said, on the show notes. And if anyone wants to join in the conversation, it's via all the usual channels. Well, thank you so much. And look, a huge thanks to all your listeners who we know are working so incredibly hard at the moment. Um, It it really is appreciated. Miller Snatter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailer Snatter, just talking to teachers. Nailer Snatter, just talking to teachers with Teacher Hug Radio, the soundtrack to your teaching career.